0: Well, guys, uh, this morning we are starting a new sermon series uh, that we will be in uh, through the fall up until Advent, and then probably uh, again a little bit after that, because we're going to tackle one of Paul's major letters, uh, his letter to the church in Corinth, uh, his first letter. So this is 1 Corinthians that we are going to be preaching on. Listen, do you ever feel like the Christian life is messy? You ever feel that way? Like you sin in ways that even surprise yourself sometimes, that, uh, that it is hard? Do you ever feel like, uh, like church is messy, right? Like you show up and you expect everybody to be well-dressed and righteous and holy and, and everything going great? Well, I hate to, to bring disillusionment into your life, uh, but the church is messy uh, because it's made up of messy people. And as messy as the church is, as messy as this church is, we try to be honest about the fact that if you're looking for a clean, neat, and tidy church, this may not be the right spot for you because we are a messy church. We are a group of sinners loved by Jesus, um, but messy sinners all the same. But if you uh, start to despair that this church feels too messy, the good news is that Corinth was probably messier than any church you have ever visited. And uh, it is going to be so much fun. Over the weeks ahead, you are going to be exposed to things that you didn't know you could say or do in church. Um, and so we are, uh, are going to look at uh, the book of 1 Corinthians as God uh, takes this messy church in Corinth and in Jacksonville and begins to take them as misshapen and broken by sin as they are and as we are and work us into the image and the shape of his crucified son. And so, that is our hope, and that is the good news. And so, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word?
1: Our reading today is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you That none may say that ye were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love.
0: You can be seated. You know, one of the central claims of the Christian faith is that Jesus reveals to us who God is, that Jesus the Son reveals the nature of God, God who we cannot see, we can see in Jesus. But it's also true that one of the central elements of the Christian faith is the belief that Jesus reveals humanity to us as well, right? By nature of his incarnation being God and man, he not only shows us what God is like, But he also shows us what a true human life looks like, a human life unbroken by sin and selfishness, a human life uh, dedicated entirely to love of God and of neighbor. That if you want to know what a successful human life looks like, the scriptures say look to Jesus. If you want to know what a whole and joyful human life looks like, look to Jesus, what a flourishing human life looks like. We look to Jesus. You know, one day I was um, checking out at the supermarket. And of course, at the checkout line at the supermarket, you have all of the magazines that are you know, telling you about the latest royal wedding or the tips to lose 50 pounds. They're trying to get you that last little bit of your money before you check out. And I saw on the cover of one of these self-help magazines, uh, on the cover there, there was a, the headline was, Jesus' Rules for Health, Happiness, and a Long Life. And I thought to myself, well, that's, that's great. I, I would love to learn how to be healthy and happy and live a long life. Uh, I, I'm, however, not entirely convinced that Jesus, uh, a man who was hated and rejected for most of his life, who uh, Isaiah tells us was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, uh, who was unjustly killed at the age of 33, uh, should be my model for a healthy, long, uh, and conflict-free life. Jesus shows us uh, that the way to, paradoxically, crazily, that if you want to know what a genuine, true, and successful human life looks like, it looks very, very different than what we typically think. That success uh, comes to be defined by self-giving love, even defeat. That power gets redefined as weakness, laying down your life. Love gets redefined not as finding your own fulfillment and who you can uh, find fulfillment in, but it becomes a picture of laying down your life even to the point of death on a cross. Right? The Christianity shows us that at the very center of the world, at the center of the universe, is a cross. And if you see that, if you see that that is the way to real and genuine and full human life through death, that it has the power to change the way you look at absolutely every bit of your life, of your culture, of your relationships, has the power to completely turn your life upside down. Now let's ask an honest question. If I were to ask you, does the church in America look like a group of people who believe that humility not boasting is the key to life, that believes not in grasping for power but in relinquishing and letting it go in service of others? that generosity to the point of poverty comes to redefine the way we think about money and accumulation. Would you look at the evidence of the church and say, yeah, that looks like what a group of people would do if you really believed that your life was meant to be shaped like the cross of Jesus? Or would you look at the church and see a group that's just as bent on attaining and clinging to power as the rest of our nation, that's just as bent on finding fulfillment through what we attain, what we get, our status, that's just as bent on finding fulfillment through romantic and sexual attachment, would you believe uh, that we are shaped primarily by the values of America or by the values of the cross? We won't go around and answer that out loud. But the truth is, friends, that it is easy for every church in every culture to have more of their culture in them and shaping them and coming out of them than they do of the cross. And that is essentially what Paul says to the church in Corinth. Over the course of chapter after chapter that we're going to see in this book, tangible situation after tangible situation, Paul's uh, diagnosis of what's going on there is that they have far, far too much of Corinth in them and far too little of the cross. That their life looks far too much like it's caught up in the same driven pursuits that their neighbors are and not being shaped by the self-giving love and power of the cross. You know, there are some uh, amazing things, some dreadful things that are happening the church in Corinth. right In our passage this morning, we saw that they are, uh, though founded in unity as one body, they've started to to split off into factions based on who they follow. Paul heard about this. Paul had had planted the church in Corinth about four years prior, and he'd started to hear that this church that was doing well, uh, Apollos was the man who came to pastor that church after Paul left, and he comes to find out that some are claiming that they're just like Apollos and they follow him, while others are claiming they follow Paul. Others are claiming that they follow Cephas, who is Peter, the other early apostle. And so they're starting to split. And so Paul hears a report uh, from his friend Chloe, who is a leader in the Corinthian church, that the church has started to fracture. But a report doesn't end there. It goes on to say that, he says Paul, if you believe this, what started as a beautiful church made up of rich and poor uh, social uh, people on the upper end of the social ladder and people on the lower end of the social ladder, now when we even come to communion, the rich folks insist that they get to go first while the poor people wait. Later on, uh, uh, Chloe's people are going to report to Paul that the, the sexual license that exists in their world has now started to invade the church such that one person in the church has actually started sleeping with his father's wife. Right, this is this is pretty pretty stark stuff. And yet Paul's analysis of it is not for them to stop it. Right? He doesn't do what we would expect him to do. Hey, you bunch of idiots, stop it. Right? You know you can't be sleeping with your dad's wife. You know that you can't communion, come together. Stop stop doing it all. No, instead, and he, he speaks pretty pointedly to him, right? There are going to be some awkward Sundays over the next few weeks. Um, but his analysis, it, it's not stop it. It's that we have to find a way for you to internalize the message of the cross, the message of the self-giving Savior that brought you into the family of faith. You have to start to see your life reflect the good news of the gospel, what we confess every week when we come together around this table, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. You have to start letting that story come to shape your life more than the cultural stories that you hear day in and day out. And of course, the thing that's helpful for us that I think you're going to see over the course of the coming weeks, that in God's providence, the culture in Corinth probably resembles most closely uh, the culture of late modern America than any other culture in the Bible. I think it is easier to draw nearly one-to-one parallels between what life in Corinth was like in the first century and what life in Jacksonville, Florida, U.S. is like in the 21st century, probably than any other book in the Bible. I'll, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the, cor- uh, the culture in Corinth. Uh, most of the historians and scholars who study such things uh, make three main observations about what marked life in Corinth. And it's actually we actually know a great deal about Corinth. It's one of the great archaeological sites uh, in the former Roman Empire. So we have entire buildings, we have streets, we have an amazing amount of knowledge about what was governing Corinthian life uh, at the time. First, it was marked by ambition and competition. Corinth was an ancient city uh, that had fallen into disrepair and had been refounded by Caesar in AD 44. And so it was in Paul's time, it was a new city where people were flocking from Rome to come and settle to try to make a fortune and a name for themselves. It was a tourist city where people gathered for the Isthmian Games, which was the largest festival of athletics uh, outside of the Olympics in the ancient world. And so people would come there, wherever you have tourists, you have people to come to take advantage of those tourists and try to sell them stuff, right? And so they're, they're, they're built a culture there of people looking to establish themselves, people looking to make a fortune for themselves, people who maybe were middle class in Rome, who said, you know what, I can make a fortune if I go to Corinth, if I start my own business. I can, I can become a noble person. I can make something significant out of my life. It's fascinating. The archaeological evidence in Corinth shows people uh, building, both rich people and poor people, building monuments to themselves all throughout Corinth. Right, that's a gutsy thing to do, right? That, to, to say I'm gonna I'm gonna build a monument to myself. I'm gonna put up a statue of me in the middle of Corinth. Or other people would give money for a temple to be built or for a building to be built. The poor uh, would give money to have their names engraved on the streets. If you couldn't afford to build yourself a a statue or a temple, maybe you could afford to to give some bricks for the road. And so all over Corinth, we have these, uh, these monuments to these people who came to this place to make a name for themselves. One historian, Ben Witherington, put it this way. The number of such inscriptions is staggering. Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. Where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. And this was in a world before social media, right? This was in a world before we judged ourselves by how many Facebook friends and Instagram followers we had. He thinks they had elevated it to an art form. They, they didn't even know about taking pictures of their food yet and <laughs> posting it for everyone else to look at of bragging about their family vacations, of all, if they had elevated it to an art form, contemporary America has come along and said, we can perfect this art form. With our technological giftings, we can take boasting and self-promotion and elevate that art form uh, to another level. And this comes out in the church in Corinth, right? If you live in a culture built around achievement, self-promotion, and boasting, you shouldn't be shocked when all of a sudden you look around in the church and it's taken up by people who are boasting and self-promoting and ambitious. right? Paul looks around and that's what he sees is at the root of this way that they divide themselves up to be who's closest to the teacher that they like the best, the most gifted and famous teacher. I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. It's this desire to be, to be with the best. He sees it when he looks at them them, uh, bickering for social status around the communion table so that the most high-status people go first and the lower-status people go second, third, fourth. He sees that and he says, Don't you see that 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 cancer of arrogance and self-promotion has taken over your own life? And so it's, it's crept into the church itself. The second thing that marked Corinthian culture was a preoccupation with appearance in what we would call spinning the truth. Uh, It was was the city that was at the center in the ancient world of what became known as the new rhetoric. Rhetoric in the ancient world was about presenting the truth, right? Think about Socrates and Plato, people who uh, had made an art form, Aristotle, of figuring out how to present the truth in such a way that people could understand it and grasp it and be moved towards it. Well, what started to happen in the, in the late antiquity, in the world of Corinth, is that the new rhetoric was centered not so much on what's true as by what sounded good. Right? It became less about laying out an argument and more about being entertaining, about being a compelling speaker, being telling funny jokes and good stories and being able to capture an audience and manipulate their emotions. That's why Paul talks over and over in this letter, against what he calls uh, wisdom and eloquence, right, worldly wisdom and worldly eloquence, was that this had started to become a church that cared more about what sounded good than what was good. A, a society that started to care more about looking good than being good. Right? Does that sound like any other cultures you know? Right, Where substance uh, starts to take a back seat to appearance. Where if it looks right on the outside, if it sounds right, if you can convince people to believe it, then that matters far more than what's, absolute, than what's actually true. We could call, uh, for its own context, Corinth was a post-truth society, a society that had started uh, to care more about appearance uh, than substance. Paul's going to say that's also what's at the root of this following of the most popular teachers. It's like you're, you're just chasing after the preacher that you like the best. The one that you think tells the, you know, does it the best. And again, this is in a world before they had podcasts, before you could just stay at home and listen to the preacher of your choice then, uh come here and be subjected to this. <laughs> and then thirdly, it was a society dominated by personal freedom uh, and the absolute right to self-expression. So it was a port city, it was a military city, and like all port cities and military cities, uh, a sex trade uh, crept into that into that city where you had a lot of single men, a lot of military men. It was a city uh, that was marked by sexual permissiveness. Faithfulness in marriage was exceedingly rare. Promiscuity was the norm. That the normal expectation was that a man would sleep with people who were outside of his marriage. Sorry, women, that was not that that was not the norm for you. Uh, but the men were essentially allowed to sleep with who they wanted to when they wanted to. It was a city in which doing what you wanted when you wanted to uh, was the supreme human value, right? Like a lot of new places, right? If you think about a new city, I mean, think about uh, even Florida, right? It's where America goes to start over. It's where America goes to start a new life where America goes many times to say, well, I no longer have to live by the rules of my parents, of the culture that I left behind. Uh, sometimes a place where older Americans say, it's a place where I don't have to be seen by my grandkids. I can go there and I can do what I want. Right? And so there's, there can be a culture of license. And so it's no surprise that in the church, Paul's going to spend a significant amount of his time in these people's business when it comes to how they order their relational and sexual lives. It's a culture where the norm of submitting what you want to a community was uh, was laughable. And so Paul's going to come to some people who are saying, I can eat whatever food that I want to. And he's going to say, but can't you see when you eat food that was sacrificed in pagan temples, it, it hurts the other people around you who've come from pagan backgrounds. But in that world, submitting the I want to what's good for us, what's good for the community, what's honoring to God, Uh, was was not even a part of the equation. And so by now, uh, you ought to recognize in Corinth uh, something of contemporary American society, something of the stuff that shapes us. If Paul were to write a letter uh, to the American church, to the Jacksonville church, uh, the chances are he would see a lot of the same kinds of things, some of the same ways that our lives have been taken over by the cultural values uh, that shape the American dream and so much of our aspirations. And so our church, uh, just like the church in Corinth, is a messy one. You know, churches don't just get formed out of nowhere. Uh, You know, I said the church in Corinth was a church that was four to five years old. Uh, This church, interestingly, is four to five years old. Uh, And churches don't just spring up out of nowhere Right? They spring up in the midst of a context, a culture, a mix of other narratives and ideas and values. And so growing in wholeness, growing in maturity, growing in the way of the cross, it's messy. right? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over the course of a long process. C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way. He said, a new nature is not, uh, is not merely made, but made out of an old one. We live amid all the anomalies, inconveniences, hopes, and excitements of a house that is being rebuilt. Some of you know that experience. Have you ever lived in a house while renovating a house? Right? Lived in a house while it was under construction? What was neat and tidy and homey all of a sudden is covered with dust. It's filled with noise. Where once a beautiful window was, there's now a hole in your wall and the elements just blow in. Right no matter how much you try to contain the dust you really can't it kind of gets on everything gets in every crevice of your home and Lewis is saying that's kind of what it's like growing up as a Christian that as you as a Christian or as a church as a body of Christians begin to get remade into the image of Jesus right it is a messy process walls get knocked down and new ones get put up and stuff gets torn out that you rather would have it been just left alone and new stuff gets brought in. And so it's a messy process. But in this passage, I think Paul shows us where the hope is that we really can be remade into something whole and beautiful. Right? If you start out on a renovation, it's helpful to know where you, where, what the finished product is going to look like. Right? It's foolish to just start tearing walls down and say, I'll figure it out later. Right? You want to have a plan. You want to know that, that you're being remade, that the house is being remade into something whole and holy. And so Paul in this passage points us, I think, to three things that the power of the cross changes in our lives. Three ways that the power of the cross, as he calls it in, in uh, verse 17, changes us. That the cross changes forever the way that we relate to God. It changes forever the way we relate to God. Look at the way he starts this letter. Remember, just reset. Remember what we've said already. I won't say it all again about the church in Corinth. The wealth, the greed, the incest, all of it. And this is how Paul opens his letter. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints together. In verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, You have been sanctified. You have been set apart by God, called his holy people. He's going to say uh, elsewhere that you have already been given every blessing you could need as you await Jesus' return. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you in peace, you uh, rich, arrogant people that cut the poor out of the communion line. Grace to you in peace, you who is so sexually confused that a good idea seems to, to start looking to your own family as your dating pool. Grace to you in peace. You have been sanctified by Christ Jesus. This is the way the gospel works in our lives in the midst of the mess and brokenness that is life in a church. God doesn't come to us and say, clean your act up, get get it together, and then you can be holy, and then you can be God's. It's never change so that God will love you. It's always, look how much God loves you. Look at all of the grace and peace and blessing that he's showered on you. And now you can change. Change you do have a new power for a new life that you can live. If you feel like your life is too messy for you to ever belong in a meaningful way in Christian community, the good news of the gospel, first off, is come on in. The water's great. Everybody in here is just as messy as you are. And that you can be at the same time deeply messy tragically flawed, grievously sinful, and at the very same time, the beloved of God. This is the great insight of Martin Luther, uh, the Latin phrase that he coined, which I will probably butcher, um, is simuli justice a peccator, at the same time, just and a sinner. At the same time, holy, just, and right before God. And at the same time, sinful and being remade afresh into God's image. And Paul knew this. This was in Paul's bones. That's why he starts this letter by reminding them of God's love, by reminding them of who they are. Now, listen, as a pastor, there are times where I wish this wasn't the way it worked, if I can be completely honest. Right? You want to come up to Paul and go, Paul, These people are a wreck. You have no idea how messy they are. Look at all the junk that's out there in their life. Please, I mean, admit it. There's a part of you that when you hear about this going on among God's people, want Paul to come down hard on these people. That wants Paul to read them the riot act, Paul to threaten them with the fact that their very souls are in jeopardy. And again, there will be places where Paul speaks very pointedly to them. But it's like I as a pastor, so my, you know, being a pastor, the, the job description is somewhat frustrating. Uh, you're essentially trying to get people uh, to believe and obey the Bible. You know, just, the, there's a lot more to it, but in broad strokes, believe the truth of it and then, and then live it out. Live it in your life. And you come like you do into any job. You come into that job description with a toolbox. right? Your skills, your ways that you can try to get people to, to do this stuff. And so it's like you come up to your people, uh, these people like Paul does, and you reach into your toolbox and you grab a hammer. And maybe the hammer is guilt. And you say, I know what I'm going to do to get these people to you know, quit their addictions, stop their lust, let go of their greed. I'm going to beat them with guilt, right? If I hammer at them with this thing for long enough, uh, eventually they'll stop. And so Paul comes up and goes, no, Dave, sorry. Actually, it's, it's Jesus that comes up and says, no, you, you can't beat my people up with guilt. That's not the the way. It's not the way in the gospel that people grow and thrive. And so you you throw the hammer away. Uh, And you go, okay, I'll grab the screwdriver. And with the screwdriver, I'll stick it in and I'll turn it, and that'll crank up the shame in people's lives. Maybe if I tell them that they fall short too much, that they're just a little too bad, if they're not careful, maybe one day God's going to turn their back on them. And Jesus says, no, Dave, I'm going to need the screwdriver too. Right? You, can, you cannot uh, get my people to love me through shame. Throw the screwdriver away. Grab the wrench. I know, I know what's going to work. The wrench of threatening them with hell. That's, that's what's going to do it. Right? If these people know that if they don't shape up and start behaving, that they're going to go to hell, maybe, that, maybe that'll change them. And Jesus, probably by now a little exasperated, goes, Dave, Seriously? Don't you know that this entire thing has been about taking away the threat and penalty of hell? That if you are in me, I have taken onto myself the penalty and punishment that your sin deserves. I've taken hell into and onto myself so that my people are not going to fall for your threats. And so you look in the toolbox and the only thing left is the gospel. The only thing left is the love and grace of God freely given and won by Jesus. In and in in this is the way the gospel works. It's not you get shame, you get guilt, you get threats until you change. It's because of what Christ has done for you. Because Christ looked at you in all of your mess and all of your guilt and all of your shame and loves you in the midst of it. Therefore, you can have a new power to live a new kind of life. No longer governed by this, this drivenness to save yourself. So the power of the cross reshapes the way we relate to God. It reshapes, it has the power to reshape the way we relate to our culture. Look at what he says, again in the back, back part of verse 2, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. We said that the people in Corinth were prideful. This is an arrogant group of people. They loved the fact that they were Corinthian. And yet Paul comes to them, and he says, yes, you are called saints of God. You are beloved. You are holy. He sets you apart along with all the other churches everywhere in the world. You're special. You're unique. You're loved. You're holy, just as holy as the church in Jerusalem and the church over there and the backwood city that you left to get here. Do you see what he does? He, he, he says, look, you are, you, you, the church exists in a culture. You are the church of God in Corinth. You're supposed to be in that culture. God sent you there. He planted you there to be a witness for him and his kingdom. But you're not defined by your city. You're not defined by your culture. You have a loyalty that is deeper and broader and more real than your loyalty to your own culture. That your primary loyalty is your loyalty to the kingdom of God, to the church of God, together with all people who everywhere. And this takes a lot to get your your head around, especially, I think, as an American that you have more in common with the Christian worshiping God today in a cave in Afghanistan, fearful for their lives, than you might have uh, with the friend down the street who votes the same as you do, uh, who dresses the same as you do, who speaks the same as you do. You might have more in common, right, with the person uh, in the Chinese house church, in the tiny church in a Guatemalan village, the immigrant who's come into our country with their faith, you might have more in common with that person than you do with the other people who fly the red, white, and blue. Because your primary allegiance, your primary identity as a people isn't your country, it's the church. It's the kingdom. I was talking to a friend who lives in Boston. He's a scholar there, teaches in a seminary. And he shared with me a research paper, he didn't write it, Uh, it was written by a friend of his, uh, that examined what he called the Great Boston Revival. Did you know there was such a thing as the Great Boston Revival? Do you know when the the Great Boston Revival happened? From 1965 to today. So it's it's still happening. In the city of Boston since 1965, the church has more than doubled in size relative to the population. There are twice as many churches in the city of Boston today than they were in 1965. You know, one of the reasons you likely don't know about the Great Boston Revival is that it did not happen largely because white conservative evangelicals started going to church or started planting churches. Most of these churches worship God in Spanish or Korean or Chinese or Creole, right? They off, the, the, the immigrant boom that's happened since then has led to the renewal and revitalization of the church in what is often talked about as one of the most pagan cities in the United States. It's fascinating. So when you think about immigration in our country, right, which is a public policy issue, there's room for people to talk about it and figure it out and disagree, do you think about it primarily as someone who's looking out for the best interests of America? That's one of our loyalties. But the other loyalty is to think about the church is booming in America in an unprecedented way. Largely because when people come to us from Latin America, from Africa, from the Middle East, and from Asia, they come with a vibrant and living faith. The country that sent missionaries around the world is now receiving missionaries from around the world. In our cities and in our towns. And that's part of what living with a dual citizenship looks like is that you think primarily as a citizen of the kingdom of God and secondarily as a citizen of the kingdoms of this world. So the power of the cross has a power to change the way we relate to our culture. And then finally, it has a way to change, the power to change the way that we think about ourselves. You know, I I love this. Um, Did you notice that there's a section at the end of this passage that we read that Paul seems to have composed with all of the care that you or I would write an email to a friend? Right there's a there's a part here where he says yeah I think I baptized a few more people yeah no, no, okay there were those people in that other house I baptized them too but beyond that I don't remember right it's a, it's, it's odd to find it in the Bible right um, and yet we believe that the Bible is a it's a book with divine authors and with a divine author and human authors right and that it all speaks together to make God's word that God is in the midst of all of it speaking to us but I love think about remember what we've said about Corinth. A city fixated on personal ambition and accomplishment, and yet here's Paul, one of the men who is unbeknownst to himself at the head of one of the factions in the church, saying, "Yeah, actually, you know what? I don't even remember how many people I baptized. That's that's not a thing to me. I don't keep. I'm not keeping score. Can you imagine the freedom uh, that you would have in life if you were free to stop keeping score?" You know, I realized I've been somebody that in any given context in my life from the time I was young, pretty much till today, uh, can figure out the rules of a game and figure out how to win it, right? In football, it was easy. You figure out how to win. You play by the rules. You figure out what you have to do. Uh, In school, right, it's easy. You figure out how to get the best grades, how to get ahead. You get out and you get into the work world and you can figure it out, figure out what are the metrics, what are the things that my bosses are looking to. We we even do it socially, right? We figure out what's a winner look like. In my world, what are the things that get people to like me? What are the things that get me kudos? What are the things that help me to get ahead? You don't know the really sick part of my life uh, is when I became a Christian and even when I was called into ministry, I didn't stop keeping score. I just started keeping score about different stuff, right? It was what, is, what, what, what do church people like? What does it take to get ahead in this world? What does it take to get well-liked and well-thought-of well here? What does it take in ministry to get a bunch of people into a room, to get a bunch of people to walk an aisle so that you feel better about yourself? Right. Often, even in the church, we don't, we don't stop keeping score. We just change the scoreboard. And yet into that world, into that Corinthian church, Paul says, yeah, you know, I, I don't remember. I baptized some people. I didn't baptize some people. Um, later on, he's, he's going to be, when, he, when his own ministry is under attack in this letter, he says, you know what, I, don't, I, I honestly don't care how you judge me. I don't even judge myself. I entrust myself to the judgment of God. Right? Here's a man who had, who had stopped the pressure to win because he'd realized that in Christ he had already won. In Christ he had already been. Uh, the verdict was in on his life. We'll close with this. This is, how, this is in our passage uh, today in verse 7. He knows that in the end he doesn't need to keep score because he's already won because of what he reminds them of, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're in Christ, you've already won. You've already succeeded. Uh, you're already loved. You're already included. Judgment Day isn't a fearful day off in the future. Uh, it's, your, it's been answered on the cross uh, for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for your love, grace, and goodness to us. We thank you that you forever have changed the math on how we approach God, uh, approaching your Father not on the belief that we have to satisfy his demands, uh, that we have to win and earn his approval, but knowing that his approval has already been showered on us in Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you'd help us to live out of that more and more. That as such, we would come to be shaped less uh, by the culture around us uh, and more by the incredible foundation that's been laid for us uh, in Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.